Let's look at verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. It's funny when you read that passage because Peter here is doing what he says Paul sometimes does in Paul's letters. Uh, We've got two letters that Peter wrote that are scripture. First Peter, second Peter. And we're studying first Peter. But in second Peter... Yeah, in 2 Peter 3, we read, uh, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, speaking of these things, notice the yellow emphasized part, in which there are some things hard to understand, which are easily distorted, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. When you read these verses, I often think uh, Steve Skinner went back to work, but he's been telling me how much he's enjoyed going through 1 Peter, and he can't remember the last time he went through 1 Peter and his own personal reading of scripture or uh, in the teaching ministry. And actually, it's been 20 years since I taught First Peter here. So it's been a while. But I, as I was studying this passage, I thought, this is probably one, this passage is probably one of the reasons you don't hear many preachers who go through the books of the Bible consecutively deal with First Peter. Because you've got to explain statements like, baptism saves you? What does that mean? And Jesus after his death, goes to prison and speaks to spirits. What's going on there? We're going to talk about that. And uh, it kind of, but in a special way, because it reminds me, I grew up in Opelika, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami. And I can remember uh, them warning us about rock pits, which, which, which these little uh, reservoirs that people fell into and could drown in, and warning us about alligators. I mean, you go to kindergarten and they warn you every day about rock pits and alligators. And you go to first grade and every day they warn you about rock pits and alligators. So you get really kind of, you know, concerned about rock pits and, and alligators. But there's a joke that goes around, at least did 60 years ago. Um, what, how do you wake up an alligator who's fallen asleep on your front porch? And the answer is very carefully. Okay. So I would say, what do you do when you bump into a passage like this that says baptism saves you? And for those of you from a Church of Christ background, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, since that's what they say. But uh, in fact, it doesn't mean what it sounds like. But we're going to talk about that as we look at this passage. But we're going to look at it very carefully. <laughs> and I'm going to break it into a, a big half and a little half. And we're going to look at the little half first. We're going to look at verse 18 first, which... Amazingly enough, to me, in the modern, broad, evangelical dynamic, and I did I had a lot of extra time to, to read uh, theological articles the last two weeks that are off-topic, uh, this idea that Christ is our substitute 
is increasingly being watered down by main major evangelical leaders because it sounds so offensive to people in our culture. So verse 18 is critical and controversial today, but Lord willing, next week we'll come back and we'll talk about what does it mean that in the Spirit Christ went to a prison? Is he going to Folsom or what's he doing? He's going to prison and speaking to spirits and uh, on the baptism saves you. Uh, I'll just give you the, the shorthand version now. He's not talking about water baptism there. He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit that puts you into the ark of Christ. And he just tells you, baptism now saves you. I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm talking about spirit baptism. I'm not talking about the removal of dirt from the flesh. When you get immersed, you kind of are taking a bath, you know. So we'll, we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But for right now, David, let's advance the slide. But here's the thing. You know, I hope that uh, after 29 years of doing this up here, I hope that one thing, if you've been here for a while, that I've taught consistently is that uh, there are three basic things you need to know, Ron, for for valid Bible reading and, 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 and a good Bible understanding. And those three things are context, that's the first thing, and then number two is context. And the third thing you need to focus on in your Bible reading is context. So that so the three keys to effective Bible study are context. But the first corollary of that would be that when the content of a biblical statement, I'm using statement in the collective there, it could be a group of verses like this one, is especially difficult, then the context becomes especially important. I mean, Dr. Deeg, it's always important. It's always the most important thing, the context. But when you're looking at a passage like this one that is uh, especially difficult, the context becomes even more important. It becomes especially important. So we're going to emphasize that this week and next week. But let's zero in on verse 18 this time. And uh, as we like to do, let's pray for our teachability and also for those who protect and serve us. We're thinking of firefighters and uh, peace officers and certainly our active military also as well. So uh, let's pray in that direction. And Zane, uh, Blanche sent me the kind of uh, text I like to get. She said, uh, please take Zane off of the prayer list, which doesn't mean you can't pray for him. You can still pray for him. But uh, Dr. Blanche feels like he's no longer on crit- in critical condition, uh, but uh, he's still chronically difficult to work with, isn't he? Blanche, I mean, you're working on that, right? So, yeah, no comment. That's the right answer on that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Zane is uh, really a solid guy. You know, he was kind of a celebrity in Duncan because he was the guy who gave the driving tests in Lawton for decades. And so I'd heard about Zane long before I ever met him. And then when I met him, which was when we were doing the men's breakfast on Saturdays once a month, uh, Zane, Daryl brought Zane a couple times, or maybe you brought Daryl. But uh, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary is Zane Hodges. So I haven't met too many people named Zane. So when I met Zane Britton, it was kind of cool, you know, to be able to use that. And I always thought that was a neat name, you know. So, so I'm glad that we got to take him off the prayer list. I knew what you meant on that. But, uh, yeah, Zane, if you would uh, lead us in, in prayer in that direction, okay? Thank you very much, Zane. Yeah, we had a, a great vacation. Uh, we kind of took a little longer than we usually do, and it uh, it was fun. And I'm glad to be back, of course, but... Uh, uh, I thought I would uh, come back from vacation with a couple of funny cartoons about vacations. So, um, 
And my computer's doing all kinds of weird things. My vacation, my computer is not off vacation yet. It's still on vacation, but we, you can't tell if that's okay. Unless I just told you. Anyway, here's a guy checking in at some campgrounds and he says, uh, my family wants a genuine back to nature camping experience, but with Wi-Fi, air conditioning, and satellite TV. So that's what people want today. Uh, here's a guy, he probably took a longer than usual vacation and he's starting, finally starting to unwind. And so he looks at his wife, they're at the beach obviously, uh, and we got to spend, uh, what, uh, four days and three nights, uh, across from Galveston with, uh, both sets of twins and their parents. And, uh, eventually we'll start talking to each other again, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, uh, they're at the beach and he says to his wife, I'm finally starting to relax. Come look at the pie charts I made in the sand. That's the kind of that stuff I'm doing. Look at this, look at this diagram of Ecclesiastes I came up with, Debbie. Come here, quick. You know, it's like, you gotta shut it off sometime, man. Uh, I like this one. These are, uh, some senior citizens. You know, the older I get, the more certain terms, uh, really upset me. I don't really like the word elderly, okay? Uh, I'm not sure how we define elderly around here, but it's always 10 years older than I am. Okay, just so you know. So these aren't elderly people. They're senior citizens. But they're going to a travel agency trying to figure out where they want to go on vacation. Isn't it nice when he explains the cartoons to you? Uh, I went to Dallas Seminary. We explain everything, okay? Uh, it's a special casino for senior citizens. The slot machines pay off in prescription drugs. <laughs> so that's pretty, that's good news, isn't it? Jackpot, you know, I have to pay for my pills this month. Um, good news. We created an app for your your phone that allows you to go on vacation without actually leaving the office. That kind of sounds like something Halliburton will come up with soon. They haven't already. And then finally, uh, this is a new hire, and the boss says you're entitled to one week paid vacation if you bring your laptop with you and never turn off your cell phone. Now, one thing I remember, and I've lost this paperwork, but when I first came here almost 29 years ago, Bill Dickinson, the man with the plan, had like this three-page diagram that summed, it, summed up uh, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship for us who didn't know about it. And on the last page, I know Dale saw this. He'll tell you he's seen this. Bill had this program for pastors. I, I don't think they ever thought they'd have a pastor stay real long, apparently, because he said after one year, you get one week vacation. After three years, you get two weeks vacation. After ten years, you get three-and-a-half week vacation. After 15 years, you get like two months a new car and a sabbatical. I mean, this is insane, you know. And I thought, hey, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'll be here that long, but I could never actually make you do that. It just it became ridiculous. So if you extrapolated it out, technically, I get the next, based on that, I get the next three years off. But we get about two weeks. I'm going to take three years, but uh, it was just it was crazy. But uh, Bill did that. He kind of did things in a big way, and then we kind of like Doctor uh, President Trump. You know, he says. This, but he really means this. And so that's the way Bill was. I mean, really. And once you figure that out, he was just easy to love, you know. Okay, let's focus on verse 18 because, let me say this. You know, I think it's really easy, especially since we just took a two-week break from First Peter. We had great uh, pulpit input uh, in my absence, but we took a jump from First Peter. It's easy, Doug, I think, just to jump into verse 18 and pay no attention to the context of what's just been said. And this is very important, and like I said, it's being watered down by many so-called evangelical ministers today, unfortunately, because it's the center of everything. But, uh, 
you know, Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust that he might, that he might bring us to God, having put, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. It's easy to detach that from what verse 17 and really that whole previous section, verses 13 through 17 just said. And Carla, to sum it up, basically verse 17 is the key verse in that previous section and it's just saying it's better if in God's will uh, it so happens, it's better for you to suffer for doing the right thing, Dennis, than for you not to do the right thing and avoid that kind of suffering. I mean, this idea that it's, Christianity is all about health and wealth, and if you have enough faith, nothing bad's ever going to happen, is not the faith of the fathers. It's not the apostolic faith. It sells well in modern America, but it doesn't sell in the third world. They don't preach that in the third world, because nobody in the third world would believe that. It's just not the way it works. In fact, when you become a Christian, your life becomes harder uh, like Angie was alluding to, and that's happening in our culture rapidly. So I think it's important for one thing to notice that when we get to verses 18 through 22, Gibson, watch this, get all this heavy theology and this kind of difficult content to kind of figure out exactly what it means. But as typically done in Scripture, deep theology like that is based on a call to do the right thing. Uh the Bible isn't just a theology book, it's a, well, I think Homer told me this many years ago, B-I-B-L-E acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, okay? We, we, the older I get, the more I wonder, why isn't there more specific information about what heaven's like? Because the older you get, the more interested you are in thinking about heaven, because uh, all your friends are there, and... uh but uh, there's not a whole lot. There's some, and everything that it says is good, but uh, not a whole lot. Because the purpose of the Bible is not to get you preoccupied with heaven, but to get you basic instructions you need, Sue, before leaving earth. And so, uh, yeah, uh, theology is always connected in the Bible to practical Christian living. Practical Christian living comes first, and then basic Christian doctrine is used to support and supplement that. So in the previous verses that lead up to this difficult passage, verses 18 through 22, we have in verse 13 through 17, a what statement. What should we be doing? A general principle. And we should realize that it's better to do the will of God, even if you suffer for it, than to avoid doing the will of God and avoid that suffering. It's better to take the test and not cheat and make a D or an F than to cheat and make an A kind of thing. That principle. So he's saying that, and then he's saying the reason why you need to embrace the will of God, even if it involves suffering, is the ultimate example of someone embracing the will of God, the Father, and suffering for it. And that what's what's that? It's the cross, right? We've already said submission can't be a bad thing, because we're told that Christ submitted to the will of the Father so that Sonia would be savable. And that's the best thing, right? So it's very important to notice before we jump into verses 18 through 22, Ron, that all this deep theology is based on a simple principle that's hard to apply, that we need to be committed to do the right thing even if we don't get the applause of people, even if we face suffering and repercussions for doing the right thing, because that's what Christ did for us, and that's the whole basis of our salvation. I'm going to look at one verse today, and it has uh, two parts. We have one big idea. And then we have the several important aspects of that idea. And here's the big idea in the first part of verse 18. For, 
because it's better to do the right thing and suffer for it like Christ did, because Christ, that's what he did ultimately. He also applied this principle up to and including the cross where he died for sins. Christ died for sins. And I couldn't, uh, maybe I had too much time in the last couple of weeks thinking about this, but I couldn't over this, uh, overcome the temptation, Nancy, to avoid diagramming this sentence. And you know what? Hey, Trey, when I grew up, I hated grammar, I hated English, and I didn't like it um, until I found out that you can actually diagram Bible statements and it helps you understand what they mean better. And once I realized this is just a way to kind of understand exactly what's going on better, I kind of fell in love with grammar, Greek grammar, Hebrew grammar, English grammar, all this stuff. And I couldn't resist. I used to do a lot of that, but I, some people don't like to come to English class when they come to church on Sunday, and I kind of get that. But uh, we got a subject, Christ, uh, major verb, died, and then we've got an object preposition that kind of gives us basic information on an independent clause for sins. Christ is the object, or is the subject of the sentence. He produces the action of the verb. He died. Now, as a SAS, SAS is our acronym for substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Sometimes we're told we're saved by the work of Christ. Sometimes we're told we're saved as the, based on the basis of the cross of Christ or the blood of Christ. Which one is it? Is it the blood, the cross, or his work? The blood, the cross is where it happened. The blood is an essential part of his violent death. But the core of it is that he died in our place. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us. God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom, you know, a payment price for the freedom of those who believe. So that's the most important thing said in this verse. It's the independent clause. Christ died as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for Angie Lovett, Tommy Lovett, uh, for David Yeager, for Brad McCoy, and he died for sins. We already know that from this book. Go back to chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins. He paid the penalty we owe God because every time we commit an act of sin, we're spitting in God's face because his moral Commandments are not social constructs. They're uh, inherent uh, aspects of his being. You know, he's inherently just and righteous. Christ bore our sins. He was he he uh, suffered. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. Remember that from uh, uh, Isaiah and from the chorus also. He was wounded for our transgressions. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Is a chorus we sing. He himself bore our sins. In his body on the cross, staros is the word for cross, Natalie, in the Greek, but that's not there. It's the word for wood or the tree, okay? And again, are we saved by the tree, the cross, the blood? Yeah, because that's where the substitutionary atoning sacrifice happened. But all those are describing the one thing, okay? They're not four different things. So that not only would we be forgiven our penalty of sin, but we might, in our actual experience, die to sin daily and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed before you were saved. You were continually straying like sheep. That sounds like uh, Isaiah 53, doesn't it? But now you've been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. But also, go to First First John. Now, not the Gospel of John, which is in the front of the New Testament. Go to First John, 
which is further back than First Peter in the New Testament. And look what uh, Peter or John here says under inspiration about the same concept about what this Christ dying for sin is really getting at. First John chapter two. We want to look at verse two, but just for some context, look at verse uh, verse one. My little children, he's talking to believers here. He doesn't call unbelievers his spiritual children. My little children, I'm writing these things to you as Christians so you won't sin. He said, don't deny you commit sins. We all commit sins. There's ways to process that. It doesn't put our eternal jeopardy, uh, uh, salvation at jeopardy. But we need to process sin and be honest about it and isolate it. But he says, if, and that's, if, and it's true, first class condition, since it's true, uh, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is our defense attorney. He's never lost a case. But the reason he can successfully defend believers even when we do sin is because of verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, depending on what translation you've got, you've seen other translations out there, just shout it out to me. He himself is the Expiation, some say. Anybody else have anything else in the translation? Atoning sacrifice, that's a good one. Uh, propitiation is kind of a fancy theological word you don't hear much anymore, but it means the satisfaction of righteous wrath by a sacrifice or an offering. So expiation can mean that, although that's a little different actually. Um, substitutionary sacrifice is good. Uh, but that uh, connotes and tells you what Christ is at the core doing on the cross. On, on the cross, he's dying to pay Dale Corbin's moral, spiritual debt to God. And not Dale's only, but look what the passage says. He himself is the propitiation. He's the, the offering for our sins, the payment for our sins. And not ours only, but those of the whole world, right? God's so love the world. Go back to First Peter. So that's our main clause. That's the big idea. And that's the... Essential content of the gospel, I'll read 1 Corinthians 15 toward the end of the message, but in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, hey, let me go back to the thing we started with, the gospel, the good news. The good news isn't if you have enough faith you won't get sick, or if you have enough faith you'll always do well in your business, because some people do get sick. Some people die of illnesses. Christians don't all live to be 99 and never have a bad day uh, physically. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So, but based on some of the preaching you hear, you, you might think that's what it, the deal's about. Uh, that's not what it's about. Uh, Christianity's about, uh, dealing with our most important eternal existential problem that we are estranged from God, uh, and it's our fault and we can't fix it. That's the problem Christianity solves. Now once you embrace Christ through faith and have that connection with him and realize he did the work and you did nothing meritorious, you simply trusted him for it, then you're freed up to live a world-class life and do the right things for the right reasons, and you can be a big blessing to people and your family and your church and everything else, but those good works are the fruit. They're not the root. They're the effect of salvation. They're not the cause. So you want to, don't want to get the cart before the horse, even though we preachers love to see people walk aisles and sign cards and get baptized and do good things and sign up for Super Summer. And talking about signing up for Super Summer, I mean, I've been blessed to speak in a lot of places all over the world, but the most intimidating thing I do every year is teach the memory verse at Super Summer. And so after this message, I'm walking down with, with all the courage I can screw up and uh, with the Spirit of God leading me, I'm going to go down there and, and uh, this is pressure because 
it'd be one if Cooper and Peter weren't here, it'd be no pressure because you know users are locals, you know. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna if I do a bad job today, I'm gonna hear about it for the next three days, Trey, because we've got those kids through Wednesday. So he's like, man, Papa, he blew it, man. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah. And it's, 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 uh, I'm not sure if Krista or Homer worked this up, but it's like Homer's favorite verse from Romans 3.38, but it's, they've got a different translation than I'm used to, so I may have to work off the original Greek with the four-year-olds, you know, uh, which I'm sure they'll really appreciate. But anyway, uh, yeah, so let's go from the big idea, Christ died for our sins, and we're gonna say more about that in a moment, to some of these, and these aren't the only things you'd say, but several, uh, key aspects of Christ's death for our sins as a, a sacrifice for our sins. Christ also died for sins once for all. And that means for all time. I, I do believe Christ died for all. Something folks believe Christ died only for the elect. I, I believe Christ died for all. I think John is clearly saying however you can get around that depending on how you interpret it. But that's not what this means here. This is hapax, means once only. It's one time only. Christ died for sins once for all. That's really important. Why? Because at the end of the crucifixion, at the end of the atonement, he says, it is finished, which means there's no more work necessary to be done by him or you or anybody else for you to be saved. And there's one major Christian organization that believes every time they do the Lord's Supper, Christ is continues to suffer, that this is... Part of the work of Christ. When you do the Lord's Supper, the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ, called transubstantiation, and that continues the work of Christ. That's not what it's saying here. Uh, Peter says it happened once for all. Jesus says it is finished, mission accomplished. I'm done. I've done the work. And the significance of 40 days after the resurrection, Christ ascending to heaven and sitting down, isn't that he's tired, is he's finished. You sit down when you're finished. God rests at the end of creation week because he's finished, not because he's tired. I actually had a, an astronomy professor at the University of Houston who made fun of Genesis because it said, hey, God's supposedly super, you know, supernaturally, supernatural and all-powerful, but he had to rest after only six days of work. And he said, I used to have to work in the army like 14 uh, days in a row, and I, I never got any rest, you know. And I thought, how do you answer that? And the answer is, he rested in the sense that he stopped working because he completed his his masterpiece that got messed up by the fall of man, and he was done. You know, Christ sits down at the right hand of the throne of the Father because he's done the work of redemption. It's finished, right? But look at this. I'm quoting from Hebrews 10 here. Every Old Testament priest. Now, this is interesting. Sonia, watch this. You're a smart Bible student. Uh, the book of Hebrews was written probably in the late 60s A.D. In fact, Zane Hodges. Uh, were you named after Zane Hodges, or was he named after you? It was one or the other. But uh, he dated it late 69, and that's typically where most people date it, in part because you have these present tense statements in Hebrews about the functioning of the Jewish temple. And the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70. But notice the present tense here. This is... Uh, probably Barnabas writing the book of Hebrews sometime before 70 AD in the first century and saying, just think about it. Jewish Christians who've come to faith based on the one-time sacrifice of Christ. Every Old Testament priest, you know, down at the temple, and if, in, if you're living in 69, they're still doing this all day long at the temple in Jerusalem. 
stands daily. He didn't say stood daily before the Romans destroyed it, but stands. It's present tense consistently through Hebrews referring to the ongoing functioning of a non-necessary thing kind of thing. Because all that stuff was pointing to Christ. Every Old Testament priest stands daily. As he's writing this, they're still doing it. Ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices were pictures of the one thing that would take away sin. What's the one thing that took away sin? The sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, right? So that was all kind of uh, uh, object lessons. They were you know, pictures. Uh, they were uh, symbolic. Uh, they continued to offer up these sacrifices, which could never take away sins, but he, talking about Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins as the sacrificial atoning work for all time, once for all time, has now sat down at the right hand of the Father, uh, waiting for that time when he will, at his second advent, make all the enemies foot still for his feet. Uh, that goes back to Psalm 110. That's not just Matthew 24, that's Psalm 110. For by one, and so just so you won't miss it, watch this, Blanche, for by one offering, he, Christ, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which outranks the Levitical priests, has perfected for all time, for all time, those who are sanctified. And Barnabas uses sanctified like Paul uses the word justified. He's talking about positional sanctification there. Now where there is forgiveness of these things through the work of Christ, there's no longer any need for temple offerings. Okay, he's saying that's that stuff's obsolete. And in fact, the Romans would put them out of business. So once for all times, a very, very important, significant statement about the work of Christ. Uh, and he is the just. He died the just for the unjust. And this sounds like something Paul says in Ephesians or Romans. We'll read from Romans in a minute. But I'm thinking about uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged. When we believe in him as our Savior, his righteousness imputed to us. But I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, he who knew no sin. The word to know in uh, in biblical parlance doesn't just necessarily mean conscious awareness. It can mean kind of deep physical involvement, deep spiritual involvement. Uh, Adam knew his wife. doesn't mean he knew her name. It means something else. You understand what I mean there. So it's talking about very in- intimate union there. He who knew no sin, Jesus, who knew no, he knew about sin, but he committed none. He, experientially, he didn't know sin at all. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, to, to make it real convicting, I always like to say, uh, and this is, this is painful. Think of the, think of the worst thing you ever did or said that may, hopefully nobody knows about, except for God. But I mean, if, if somebody found out you thought that or did that, it would be so horrific. I can think of several things, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, but, uh, you know, you think or you did, and you go, oh man, I can't believe I did. It's horrible. It's terrible. And, it offended God big time, plus it would just gross everybody else if they knew I thought that or did that. Uh, and by the way, the things I'm thinking about I did 40 or 50 years ago, you know, so not, not lately. But, uh, um, but I mean, God knows all about that, okay? So you think, you know, I, a white lie, you know, I, I took a piece of bubble gum. I mean, if, you know, God's going to be technical about that. But we've all got stuff. We've all got skeletons in our closet, don't we? Stuff we, we hope nobody ever finds out about. But we know God knows about it. Well, Christ goes to the cross knowing 
you at your very worst and willingly covering your debt for it. Okay? Not to, to justify it or to paper it over, but to make sure that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. That's straight from Romans. And here, uh, I love this statement, this description. Uh, Peter says, Christ is the just for the unjust. And he does this so he might bring us to God. You know, the Old Testament is filled with statements. Salvation is of the Lord, Jason. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not something you do for God. It's something he does for you. That's what that means. We're so familiar with that statement. We don't always unpack it for all it's worth. But here, you know, Peter is just kind of amplifying that. Salvation is of the Lord. Christ died once for all for our sins so that he might bring us to God. Not so that we could come to God. People sometimes say, well, I came to the Lord when I was, you know, six years old or 66 years old. Yeah, really, God came to you, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I found the Lord. No, God wasn't lost. You didn't find the Lord, you know. <laughs> you were the one who was lost. I mean, I know what those things mean, and some preachers get really nasty about people's bad theology, but, uh, you know, sometimes uh, it's like, Father, forgive them. They know what, what they say, you know. That, once you get the, some theology training, it's easy to pick apart every, everything. And I listen to some of my messages, and you can't believe some of the goofy stuff. Well, you probably can't. Some of the goofy stuff I say. But, uh, yeah, technically, uh, you know, God wasn't lost. We were the ones that were lost. So that he might bring us to God. Okay, it's very important you understand that concept. That's what you're trusting in when you get saved. You're trusting that Christ did something for you you can't do for yourself. It's not Jesus did something that allows me to save myself is not a saving message, okay? Jesus isn't the helper so you can be a good person and earn your salvation, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What's the difference between mercy, mercy and grace? And we're talking about fuzziness. A lot of preachers are fuzzy on this. Grace is general. It means unmerited favor. Favor you don't earn, deserve, can't undeserve, can't unearn. Uh, okay? Mercy is favor given because of the pitiful status of the recipient. You just see this person, he's so pitiful. I'm sorry, Dale. Uh, <laughs> God looks at Brad McCoy and says, that, that guy goes through dental school. Going to seminary through dental school is not a, it's a long way around, man. It's just a dumb way to do it, man. Uh, but I learned some lessons there that I couldn't have learned anywhere else, I tell you. <laughs> uh, I've often said my worst day in the pastorate was better than my best day in dental school. And that's just a slight exaggeration, so. Uh, you know, God uses all that stuff. But Christ dies once for all. He's the just for us, the unjust. And we're so pitiful, his mercy caused us to do that. Such that bottom line is salvation is him saving us, not us saving ourselves. Not us having a chance to earn it ourselves. So he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, right? But made alive in the spirit. The MacArthur Study Bible has a nice note on that, and we'll go into more detail about this next time because we're going to talk about him and the Spirit going to a, a compartment and speaking to certain spirits between the death and the resurrection. But um, the uh, study note in the MacArthur Study Bible on this says, uh, talking about being uh, alive in the Spirit, it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit here, but to Jesus' true inner life, his human spirit. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week, as I say. But, uh, yeah, let's go there. Uh, I'm going to wind down, and trust me, I've been gone for two weeks. I haven't spoken. Now, I, I did go to church. Well, I, I always go to church when I'm out of town. Not to criticize other preachers, by the way. 
but I get to speak at the senior, the senior adult two women's class at 7th Street Baptist Church has given me an open invitation, probably because I work real cheap, uh, to speak to them. And it's like, it looks like the, the Vinci's Last Supper. They've got this, Debbie's been there. It's a long, long table surrounded by about 18 or 22 year old ladies that are about 85 to 101. And they, they, they don't want you to go real long, which is hard for me. They want you to speak real loud. And so I, do, I don't sit down. I just kind of circle the table and speak about three times louder than I think I need to. And everybody seems to be happy. And uh, like with all my messages, they all have happy endings because everybody's happy when I end them, you know. So they're always happy with that. But yeah, uh, and uh, we're going to emphasize that the, the death of Christ validated by his resurrection is the core of all of Christianity and all the denominations uh, historically have embraced that. And this is 7th Street Baptist Church. And uh, they do a good job, but I got to say, I like I like our bulletin better than theirs. That's just me. But then uh, again, we're not any better than they are, but I, we have a better bulletin. But uh, let me say a couple of things briefly to expand on uh, Christ dying for us and the importance of that. Um, and uh, realize I'm not going to say everything I could say at all. I could easily speak for hours on this, but I'm giving you some extra stuff. The last page there says something like, but wait, there's more, like those infomercials all do on TV. And I'll give you an appendix. You can read that at your leisure. But when we say Christ died for sin, we mean in the sense that his death on the cross, his bloody sacrificial death on the cross, was and is a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sins. And according to 1 John 2, 2, it's not just for ours only, but those of the whole world. That's the heart of the work of Christ. So this diagram is an attempt to say, you know, at the very central core, uh, the purpose of the death of Christ is to be an SAS. Now, I think you can tease out other benefits that come out of the death of Christ, but the central one is uh, his, uh, his, propitiation, his propitiation, his work of propitiation. So I didn't come up with this analogy myself. I got it. I think it was from uh, unseenevidence.com. I think that's a website I got this from. I, I've tweaked it a little bit. But let me illustrate what I mean by that. Uh, there are many blessed aspects associated with a nice Christian wedding ceremony. No pressure, Gibb, but we're still waiting to do yours. Okay? It's going to be tough to... It's going to be tough... Uh, to do better than Lindley's, but that's, that's pressure, isn't it? It's gonna, Tommy's looking at me like, uh, don't, 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 yeah, yeah, I mean, what, the father of the bride has to pay for the wedding, but you're gonna be the father of the groom that time, yeah, yeah, we, we were the father of the groom twice, you know. I actually married both of my sons, which is weird. You can do that in some countries nowadays, but, uh, now I officiate at their weddings. And, but that's, that's a bitter, that's a bittersweet thing. Yeah. I married my two sons. I married my two daughter-in-laws. Uh, but uh, and you know what? Uh, I can remember they did uh, they you know they did the PowerPoint show the pictures of the bride and the groom leading up to it and for both those weddings. And I, I think I kind of I think they made me do the PowerPoint show for Jamie's wedding. So I'd seen all those pictures and I processed that and I kind of liked it liked it. So at the wedding ceremony when I saw that I'd seen it and I'd kind of gotten over the emotions. But somebody else volunteered to do Jonathan's, 
And I really hadn't thought about it. And then we were kind of, me and the groom and the groomsmen were kind of behind this door with a window. And uh, we were about to go out. And they were going to do the show, slideshow before we went out. Some of you were at that wedding. And uh, where was Candace from? Uh, Hera, yeah, First Baptist Church of Hera. But I hadn't seen I hadn't seen a lot of those pictures for years. I was looking out the window, and I was really getting emotional. And I thought, you know, I got I got a good grip on here because I don't want people to be saying, "Isn't that cute?" The minister's crying because his son's getting married. I said, I, I don't want it to be about me at all. I've often said uh, I've been able to do a lot of weddings over the years, and uh, Natalie, I've often thought, especially at a big fancy wedding, you know, you always you always feel like the minister at the wedding. Uh, I, I feel like the home plate umpire at the seventh game of the World Series. They absolutely cannot do it without you, but if anybody notices you very much, it's only because you made a major boo-boo. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not about you. And uh, it's funny, when we got married, you know, we came up there at First Methodist Church in Dunk, in uh, Nederland, and uh, as I remember it, the, the minister stays here, and, and everybody looked at the back of our heads. And back then, I didn't have a bald spot, so that was fine, you know. But and that was, in fact, that was great for me because I was really terrified of being in front of groups of people like that. But nowadays, and I think it's much better uh, for the couple rather than looking at the back of their heads for them to turn sideways. And if the venue's tall enough, if, this, if the structure's tall enough, I'll just I'll get in front of them. If I'm if it's low enough, they can look over my heads. But I like them to be in front of me looking at each other so everybody can see them saying their vows to one another. So that's just me. But that's typically the way it's done nowadays. So anyway, here's this illustration. At a really nice Christian wedding ceremony, there are many aspects that are fun about weddings. You've got this group of family members from both sides that may never all be in the same place again, this side of heaven. Uh, A plethora of special photographs. The enjoyment of food and drink, and if obtained, I wish Janice were here so I get the points, from a Special Days Cake Boutique, the consumption of delicious pieces in wedding cake. Okay? So let's diagram it this way. Uh, you know, you've got uh, family there. You've got photos that you're going to treasure. You've got great food. And you got cake, you know? But even though cake is part of most weddings and photos, that's not the main thing. What's the main aspect of the wedding? Is it the great food at the at the uh, reception? I mean, I know some people go to weddings for the food, but I mean, you really shouldn't go that way. What's the main thing of a wedding, Sonia? Uh, uh, Sonia, uh, Savannah, I've been out of town. It's got to be the couple making these vows, right? Making this commitment, cleaving, leave, cleave. That's you cleave when you make the promises to one another. Now, of course, Janice would put that put it that way. And she says wedding cakes. But I think all of us would understand, yeah, there's a lot of cool aspects of a wedding ceremony, Doug, but the essential part is the vows. I would say the same thing holds true when you're talking about the death of Christ. Now, over the centuries, some people have taken some of these secondary or tertiary things and made them the only thing and emphasized those to the exclusion of the central thing. But I think, uh, for me, I look at some of these theories of atonement, they're called, and say, you know, there is a sense in which the death of Christ has had a huge moral impact on human history. But that's not the only reason he did it. That's not the main reason uh, he did it, right? Uh, it recapitulated Adam. He's the last Adam. Uh, the first Adam was born creaturely perfect, and he sins. Christ is perfect, doesn't sin, pays for the sin. It recapitulates that and trumps that. I get that. But that's and that's kind of part and parcel of the other. But 
just realize there are some people that try to replace the main thing with some of these secondary things, and that'd be like saying, well, the main purpose of the wedding was so we could eat wedding cake, and that's not the main reason, right? Lori, right? You just had your anniversary, right? And uh, in Las Vegas, right? And Elvis married you, right? Is that what? That's pretty amazing. I didn't. I thought he was dead, but anyway. Yeah, that's cool. So that's that. So Christ's death was something he willingly submitted to, by the way, and that's very important because some of the people that want to water this down are saying, you know, God wouldn't force a son to do this thing. Uh, this is something that Christ willingly embraced as part of the larger will of God. We sometimes talk about this, but it's really important to understand this, Sonia, that we've got one God who exists in three persons, and the Father isn't the Son, and the Father isn't the Spirit. And the Son is fully God. He's full deity. He's got all the attributes of God, but he's a different person than the Father and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is fully God, and he's a he. He's a, a person with mind, will, emotions. He's not an it, but he's not the Father nor the Son. And in the overall plan of God, theologians break it down this way, and I think it's good. God the Father is the architect. He's the sender. He's, he's kind of in charge of the blueprint for the whole program of human salvation. God the Son is the active agent. He's the sendee. He's the one who actually does the work of redemption on the cross, April 3rd, 33 AD, if we have the date right. And God the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment. He draws us to Christ. He opens up our heart, turns the lights on so we can see and believe. But um, today, a lot of people on the fringe of evangelicalism don't like that. They say that the atonement of Christ theory is cosmic child abuse, and I think they are cutting their own throats, if I can use a very violent metaphor there, and they're missing the point, and they're trying to substitute some of these secondary things for the main thing because they're afraid that the uh, the cross might be offensive to people. What does Paul say about that? He says, you know, the only thing I'm preaching is the cross of Christ, and I know it's an offense to the world, and that's the point because the world needs to be offended, because the world desperately needs a Savior, right? Uh, you know, Christianity is all about the death of Christ for our sins. Jesus says, I lay down my life. I'm, I'm doing this voluntarily. I want to do this. I'm volunteered for this part of this thing. And I'm going to take it up again. No one's taken it away from me. I, I could call down angels from heaven and start the universe over. I wanted to, but I'm submitting to this. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I've received from my Father because he's the author of the plan and I'm the active agent. Uh, John 10.11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life voluntarily for the sheep. Uh, in this is love, not that we love God, not that we're going to try to save ourselves, but that God loved us, sent his Son. The Son is the sendee. He takes an inferior position, even though he's ontologically equal, as the sendee. He loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then here comes from the theology, the practical thing, Blanche. If God loved us that much, we ought to love one another. Because all of us around this room are recipients of God's love. Uh, the next page, Romans. Just read the New Testament. It's on every page, practically. By the works of the law, you can't save yourself. The law shows you you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Uh, you need the righteousness of God, even the righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for Presbyterians and Baptists and Iraqis and Iranians and Africans and Europeans and even Americans. 
For there's no distinction for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're justified as a gift by his grace to the redemption, to the substitutionary atonement sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whom God displayed as a SAS in his blood through faith. We maintain a person is justified through faith apart from works. Right? In him we have redemption through his blood, through his death on the cross, his atoning sacrifice, forgiveness of sins. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, we have a world that denies moral accountability, denies sin, and if you don't have sin, you don't need a savior. So you're kind of you're kind of uh, defining your way away from salvation, which is really a bad thing to do. Um, you know, somebody said, "I can't believe that people deny the doctrine of sin because it's the only major doctrine that's validated in every news report, every day long, all day long." You know, you got the murder and the mayhem. God shows His love toward us in that while we're yet sinners. Christ died for us. And then 1 Corinthians 15 is the gospel. Let me remind you about the gospel, which I preached to you when I first came to Corinth several years before he wrote this letter, which you received, which, by which you stand, by which you're saved, that Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. According to the scriptures, he was buried and raised on the third day. And then he, uh, was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Uh, which refers to the collected group of apostles. Uh, he appeared more than 500 people at once when he gave the Great Commission, most of whom are still are alive as he writes this letter, but some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for their death. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, one last time at the Ascension. And then last of all, he appeared to me, that's Saul, better known as Paul. So take this to heart. The core of our Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and not his death as a victor, just showing that God is more powerful than death, or not just his death because he was a virtuous martyr who got the Romans and the Jewish authorities mad at him, but who died as a substitutionary payment for your sin and, more importantly, for my sin. Okay, And that's what has bound all the denominations and all the cultures and all the countries for 2,000-plus years together in Christianity, including Assemblies of God folks and Methodists and Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists. I like that. Southern Baptist goes down, Northern Baptist goes up. Uh, the things I think about when I do these diagrams for you, man. Uh, Church of the Nazarene, Presbyterian, this is not inclusive. Church of Christ, Lutheran, whatever your favorite one is. My personal favorite one is TBF. That's just me. Um, that's the essence of Christianity. It's the core of Christianity. It's really the core of human reality. It's the substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, validated by his resurrection. Everything about reality starts with that. I know the culture doesn't like it, doesn't believe it, and look how irrational the culture is. Okay? I could list some things, but we don't have time. Okay? <laughs> uh, now, the death of Christ is the basis, is the, is the capital God uses to release, to release your debt. But he will not cram this down your throat. The cross does not apply its benefits. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. Uh, Romans 4, 5, probably my favorite verse that nobody seems to quote in this thing. But to the one who does not work, but who believes on Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged, that applied to us when we trust him for it, plus he gives us a perfect righteous standing on our first day, on our worst day, on our last day on earth. That's the standing we have as a believer in Christ. 
Saving faith is active, receptive trust in the sufficiency of Jesus to save us. It's not believing he did some stuff historically so I can be a nice person, a good Baptist, a good Presbyterian, and maybe make it to heaven. Saving faith is daring to say, I'm a sinner, it's my fault, and I can't fix it, but Jesus paid that debt I owe to God, and he did it completely. He rose again to validate it, and I believe he did that, and I accept that for me. I accept him as my Savior. That's active, receptive trust. As many as receive him. It's not just mental assent. It's full consent of the will. That's the very core of Christianity. That will never change. You know, uh, uh, I'm kind of getting nostalgic as I get older and as these numbers get bigger, but this is going to be the end of my 29th year, and I think I'm good for another year or two at least, but uh, I can't imagine anybody wanting to listen to me when I'm 70. You know, I'm sneaking up on that. I know I look older than that, but, you know, I've had a rough life, you know, but the dental school did it to me. But uh, uh, this has always been the core of this church, and we're not the only ones. I mean, look at the way God's church looks. He likes it like that. But that's that's the absolute non-essential uh, essence of our Christian faith. We believe in a crucified, risen Savior. And what does a cross mean? We've sanitized the cross, man. We've taken the blood off the cross. You know, people wear it around their neck, and that's fine. But you have, like, wrestlers wear it around their neck, all kinds of people. They just think it's a cool decoration. I mean, can you imagine if you had, uh, if your symbol of your faith was the electric chair? Would anybody want to embrace that faith? The cross is worse than the electric chair. It's the kind of the worst form of crucif- uh, of, of uh, torture ever invented. But it's the perfect place, hanging between heaven and earth. The God-man Savior bears the sins of the world. And then he busts out of a tomb three days later. You know, So that's the essence of the, uh, of the, of the Christian faith. A suffering Savior who doesn't look like the God-man on that cross. He looks like a horrible victim. He looks like a virtuous martyr, and that's all. In fact, he's the God-man Savior, and that's what you're believing when you trust him as your Savior. And that's the essence of the faith. And that's just, that's not, not negotiable. But it's very politically incorrect. So you have a choice to make. You're going to live it out. You're going to you're going to hide it. You're going to reveal it. You're going to conceal it. Uh, if you haven't believed it, this is our invitation. We're not going to have you sign a card, walk an aisle. Uh, Blanche is very capable of playing just as I am 29 times for us. But we rather, if it's real, you don't need that. Okay. And if you do that, sometimes it's not real. Uh, for many of us, most of us, we've embraced Christ as Savior. Uh, don't water it down. You don't have to be obnoxious about it, but we can't water this down. It's the essence of everything. Okay, Let's have a word of prayer. Father, forgive us for maybe being a little too comfortable with the essence of the gospel sometimes and and maybe wanting to, to fudge it a little bit so that we can look cooler to people or maybe be our faith and our church be more attracted to people. And uh, as Paul said, you know, let me preach nothing but the, the crucifixion of Christ uh, to which I've died to the world because the world wants salvation some other way than through a crucified, risen Savior. And I know, hey, we're not the only ones. There are lots of good churches in Duncan. There are lots of places all over the world that billions of people have believed this message, and I know that. But uh, help us to never, ever take it for granted and let us let it not only give us a blessed assurance, but a powerful uh, incentive uh, to live wise, righteous lives where you planted us here in Duncan, Oklahoma. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.